Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And welcome to another Seven Things EMS. I'm your host, Dan Limmer. Today's topic, Seven Things Dealing with Death. We're going to talk about death on scene, death notifications, some resilience. This can be tough on us, and we're very fortunate uh, to have someone uh, with a lot of knowledge on this, and I'm very happy to introduce uh, Alex Jabbar um, to the show. Hi, Alex. Hi. All right. Alex is a paramedic has a master's, this fascinates me, in death, grief, and bereavement. Um, She's working on her PhD. uh, And to share this information with EMS, she's created a a course on emergency resilience. I think there's more in the future when she finishes her uh, doctorate. But you can get uh, more on this at emergencyresilience.com with Alex. Before we start, I want to do that shameless uh, plug. We've had some great conversations. Hopefully, we can continue that here. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate being here. All right. So one of the things this podcast does is gets right into it. Not a lot of, you know, fluff and things in the beginning. So let's do it. The first section we're talking about is when you're on a scene uh, and there's a there's a death. One of the things that you said that I think people know in their heart, but you mentioned there's subconscious issues with this. You can do everything right and the patient still dies. Right. Death happens. Tell me about that. Well, the, the subconscious part is, is a kind of a theory I have and just being able to witness it both as a provider and as an educator, especially as an educator, I've seen this. And I think that it's within our education system for EMS that we create this subconscious failure, this, this association with failure when a patient dies. I think because I recall being taught and I've made these mistakes before as well, where it's, you better know these doses, otherwise your patient's going to die. Or you fail the skill when you do something detrimental and the patient dies. Of course, Um, I understand there has to be a standard there, but when do we ever create scenarios that the patient was going to die anyways and you still pass that skill? And that's what I've challenged is, is associating death with a completely successful skill. And I think most of the time when there's little emotion involved and it's not a call where we see ourselves in it um, and it doesn't hit personally, we, we don't really have to tell ourselves that, but we really do have to remind ourselves that we can do everything right and the patient still dies. And I think it's a very healthy reminder to extend to our bystanders who start CPR as well, because that is a very courageous thing for them to do. And they are often left with ruminating every action that they made and whether or not their actions caused the death or led to it or didn't help things. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a little bit of a racing the Grim Reaper culture we have, part of our identity. Isn't there a part of us that, you know, it's what we do? I mean, I've seen tattoos and T-shirts and things at conferences where, you know, it's, it's we're, we're racing the reaper. We're the, we're the fine line between life and death. And that probably isn't fair or realistic, is it? No, but I mean, it, it definitely is. It, there are times where the only thing between that patient and the grave uh, is the medic, but it's not, um, we can't race, we can't beat every one of them. We know this for a fact. Statistically, 100% of us will not, <laughs> you know, be beat by that uh, reaper. So, and you, you mentioned that there are some calls, just going back one, uh, one part of this conversation, you say there's certain things in death that tends to, to bother people more. When you say that there was no relation, it doesn't look like your child or brother. It doesn't have some uh, connection because some of those do, don't they? Oh, yeah. I think it's what, what again, I've observed. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. But it's when... It's a call that you 
you identify yourself somehow with family dynamics. Maybe it's uh, the grandmother that died and you came from, you know, there's a matriarch in your family that just died. Uh, Maybe there is a a four-year-old mischievous child that got out of the house and fell into the pool. And this kid looks just like your kid and sounds very similar to yours. And maybe your kid's at a birthday party that day where there's a pool and, you know, there's anything that, that sucks you into that storyline where you identify with it um, can definitely cause some, some glitches in how we compartmentalize on scene. And it's completely understandable. It's very normal. And it actually happens more often than I think we, we discuss. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think anyone's been around for a period of time has probably experienced that or seen someone experience that um, in the business. So, I mean, I think as we talk about death on scene, we're now in a spot where we're calling a lot of codes on the scene. We're going to uh, not taking people to the hospital. We are the final say. And the next topic goes into the family to involve them, to update them, um, allow them to watch if they choose. There's some research on that as well, especially with, you know, with pediatrics. You know, it's kind of our desire to shield and protect, which is not always best for someone. And then actually having them say goodbye uh, before you finish the code. So let's talk about uh, the family um, at that moment as well. Yeah, um, that's actually been one of the biggest pushbacks, especially with pediatrics is, well, it's going to be too traumatic for the family. And I want to challenge people to, to think about the fact that yes, it may be, it it will be. I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but uh, most likely it will be, but that doesn't usually stop a parent from wanting to be with their kid when their kid is suffering. And there's a lot of abandonment issues that may happen with any family member of any age that feels like they weren't there for them in their greatest time of need. And so we need to allow an opportunity for that to happen. And and granted, this is where EMS can get involved on scene, but there are still areas in our country who are transporting um, with CPR in progress. So these are opportunities that can happen in the hospital as well. Or let's say you get a unstable patient in the hospital and they later code. Um, these are things that, that can be kept in mind there um, to bring in the family. And I think more often than not, the family is... Um, so being emotional is not the same as being disruptive. And that's something we have to find comfort in and realize that a patient family member who is crying is not innately disturbing of the scene. It may make us uncomfortable. And I've had that discomfort on scene. I understand what that feels like. Um, but maybe just getting to the source of where that discomfort is coming from. Now, if they're being disruptive, that's a completely different story. But I think those are the exceptions, not the rule. And a lot of times we like to make rules based on exceptions because we have a fear of, of it happening more often. Um, but bringing in the family, I, I know that, that that research has been around for at least 15 years, but the direction has not been clear. And so I've seen family involvement done very poorly. Um, we definitely don't need family doing any type of uh, skills or assisting unless uh, you know we're talking a rural environment where you need family to continue CPR while you get something set up. I've heard of that completely different story. Um, but involving the family as far as you know, I had a gal reach out yesterday and say that um, the the EMS asking her to go grab the list of meds made her feel so helpful, and I thought that was great to know. So involving them, having them gather information, having them do something, doing something helps them feel like, okay, I helped, I contributed. Um, Inviting them to say goodbye before you stop CPR. So for EMS, that patient's clinically dead when you get on scene and you see that they're not breathing and they don't have a pulse and you start CPR. But to the family, that patient's not dead until you tell them that they're dead and you pronounce them. They're still alive to them right? They're still in that denial and that bargaining phase. So you're inviting them to that next stage of grief um, by allowing them to say goodbye first. There's some research that suggests that hearing is the last sense to go. And if you look into a very weird phenomenon called, um, what is it, cognitive awareness during CPR, there's a lot of people who have come back 
um, who have been successfully resuscitated that have recollection of parts, if not a whole, of what occurred while they were in arrest. And hearing, wow. at the very least. Sometimes even seeing from a perspective of out of body and you know overseeing the, the situation, the scene that's going on. So letting them speak to their family. Um, and, and that's, that's really the, those are the, the two big ones, I think. What do you think keeps EMS providers from doing these things? And if they did these things, you, you talk about to let the family say goodbye in there, it strikes me that, that they would find it to be even more, a more meaningful experience for the EMS provider, if they knew how to do that, that there'd be some um, some closure, some at least satisfaction in a code that didn't work for the EMS provider. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think uh, that's where allowing the family and in, even inviting them to stay in the room, don't force them. But, you know, one of the studies you, had, you, you kind of alluded to with the pediatrics, they there was about 1,200 and some parents in a PICU. And even though I think it was like 83, 86% of them wanted to be there, would, would be there again for their kid during the arrest, um, 100% of them wanted the choice. That, that I think says everything. They want control. They want to be given that right. Um, and why we don't do it, I think, is because it's um, we're very algorithm-based. We're very protocol-based. Um, depending if we have a think outside the box, don't get stuck in the box kind of mentality, um, it, it's just a practice that's not known. Nobody's given us that permission. Nobody's given us that um, direction. And that's what I hope to be able to do. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Kubler Ross uh, a couple times now. I'm picking out, you know, showing my age here and, and reading that. Um, sent a couple parts in one of her books that a lot of this comes down to the way we feel about death ourselves and the way oh, we've yeah. experienced and seen things. Oh uh, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Kubler Ross is one of our, our uh, you know, main researchers when it comes to this that we refer to from the like the 1960s when the hospice movement was was really coming uh, to age here in, in the United States. But I, that's one piece of feedback I always find interesting to get when people take my course is they say you kind of tricked me into thinking about my own mortality and admitting my own hesitations with death, my own um, aversions or avoidance of it. And I think a lot of times we just want to avoid being the one that has to tell the family because I don't know if you've ever said this, but it was always like, well, they were alive when I got them in the hospital or they weren't dead. Once I got in the hospital, that's on the doctors, that's on the nurses. It was always someone else's job. So I think our, our discomfort with it absolutely shows up on those calls. And I think, you know, what's interesting is even at the hospital, we'll jump into the death notifications now, but even at the hospital, you're still a connection with that family between life and death and working that call at the scene, bringing the patient to the hospital and ending that connection, not having any conversation, even in the hospital. uh, That's an opportunity there because you're a part of it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. No. And I I would encourage those who feel, you know, I don't want to tell anybody any direction that's going to step on any toes, but I do know of occasions where somebody who was previously on scene saw that nobody was speaking to this wife. Um, and he just finally went in and, and told her what was going on. Um, sometimes it's, and I actually, I heard this story from the widow herself. Um, I met her randomly at a community event. Somebody introduced me to her told them what I studied. She says, Oh, my husband just died four weeks ago and went on to tell me that everybody ignored her in the ER. So nobody would come talk to me. Nobody would explain what was going on. And finally one of the firefighters identified that and went and told her himself what was happening and what the likelihood of the outcome was going to be. So. It's funny with, we'll talk later about people don't remember a lot from those things, but even if they don't remember the words, they'll remember the kindness. They'll remember the moment, even if it's not the words, uh, they'll do it. So let's just go into death notification. We have two of our seven things here that I think it's important to say, it's not your job to relieve their pain and suffering. Mm 
It's to give them space to grieve and invite them to progress in their grief. You talked uh, already about the denial in the beginning and then being able to say goodbye, helping them move through those stages. You know, I, it, it annoys me that when we teach EMS classes, death and dying are largely taught uh, as test questions. You know, which stage are you in? And, you know, it's uh, without, giving the, with the, yeah, without giving the, the depth of it. So before we talk about delivering the news, let's do the 30,000-foot view of what, what the job is. That so we can't fix it for them, but we have mm-hmm. to kind of start them or keep them going on this process. Yeah, I think it's this, um, again, we're programmed to fix, we're programmed to respond, we're programmed to make someone's worst day a little better. And when we're told to stand down and let that emotional unraveling occur, it it can be very, uh, just feels very unnatural, like we're not comforting them, like we're not doing something. Um, to fix it. And I've even had a student ask me one time, I had a medic student go, you know, explain that he had seen this, that his partner pronounced the husband and the, you know, wife broke down crying on the floor. And he goes, how do we fix that? And I said, you don't. That's the hardest part for you to realize is, is it's not your grief is nothing to be fixed. It's to be experienced in its entirety. And it is not going to get wrapped up while you're on scene, much less six to eight months later, however long it takes for that individual um, to work through it. But even if if family is expressing um, statements that tell you they're in denial or, you know, you know, maybe bargaining with you, you hear them talking to the family member, which is totally fine. Um, they already know. You're just the one that has to, to completely bring them to that realization. They already know. Um, there's been a lot of hesitations with notifying family members on the phone. But there's, yeah, there's the... And it's not ideal, of course, but there's been more conflict and emotional disruption by withholding that information from a family member who's on the phone with a provider who knows something's up and knows that we're holding something away from them. Um, In fact, there's a a case I won't get into right now, but it's a case in Ohio where coroners basically dodged this father about eight, nine hours because they were trying to tell him in person and he knew his daughter was dead. He just knew. So we need to be less, um, less protective, be respectful and hold that space. But don't worry so much about softening the blow because that's just not going to happen. Does this process you know, I'm seeing EMS people, and we are fixers. We want to make it better. You know, we have short-term interactions with people, and we get in there. We want to fix and make it better. Does this is this something that gets better or easier over time, or can this be tough every time for someone? Uh, personally, as someone who avoided this for many years. Um, before I think the EMS God said I wasn't allowed to avoid it anymore. Um, I'd say I got better at it. It didn't get easier. I just got better at it with practice, like all things do. And it really just takes one off day to throw me backwards. I'm sure. Um, so for some people, it won't get any easier. And that's totally fine. Most people are going to walk away from these situations, not having that aerial view, like you mentioned, not realizing that their actions are merely there to plant a seed that you're not going to see the outcome of it. When I think back to my own experience and when my mom died, they have no idea that the things that they did have led to this, but it did, you know, and there was so little that they probably walked away wondering, man, I wish we could have done something more maybe, you know, cause it was my sister and I, but They'll never, we'll never know the long-term effects of the actions that we take on scene. And that's not the purpose of it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about delivering the news. It's not easy, but it's important to do it right. Mm-hmm. I'll let yeah. that go. There's probably seven things just in this. As a matter of fact, you've got in, a, in the list in front of us here, uh, things about things we should and shouldn't say. What's the, what should we say? How should it be done? 
So I'll go backwards a little bit. And when I said um, it's not our job to soften the blow, um, what I want to clarify is it's not our job to, to relieve their suffering and that grief grief is meant to be experienced. Like I said, it's a healing process. Um, but there is a right and wrong way to break that news. Ultimately, um, if the person's already dead and let's say law enforcement coroner, somebody who has to go actually make the notification, uh, you want to be very clear and direct. Um, but understand that the moment, whether, whether this is happening on scene, um, of a patient that's being worked up or this is happening acutely where the patient is already dead or the, the, the individual is already dead and you're going and notifying the family. Um, understand that the moment that you say that they're dead, they're not going to hear a whole lot afterwards. So it's important to build up to that moment. Obviously you're not going to drag it out. You want to be respectful and concise. Um, but one thing I recommend when you're on scene is immediately the second you make a point of contact with your, you know, head of the house, you know who it is very quickly. Um, but once you make a point of contact with that individual, you're going to let them know why you're staying on scene and that you're going to be there for at least 20, maybe 30 minutes. It's whatever you guys decide. But that is, I had a cop come up to me recently and say, that's not, he appreciated taking my class because he's like, I actually didn't know why you guys stayed on scene. And he goes, I get asked that all the time and I don't know what to say. Like and he's never thought to ask. Um, but he said that that was really interesting to understand that part of the job. And so notifying the family immediately that you're staying there after about 10 minutes, if that patient's still in asystole, you can start, building them up to what's inevitably going to happen. Maybe it's 15 minutes. I don't know. That's up to you guys to decide, but you start telling them, look, we've done X, we've done Y, we've done Z. He's still not breathing on his own. She still doesn't have a pulse. Their, you know, heart rhythm on the monitor has remained this way. Maybe you bring up the fact that it was unwitnessed. What that means to us is it could have been eight hours ago, whatever, you know, I'm making stuff up here, eight hours, you'd obviously have some signs of death, I'd hope. But um, maybe you build up your case and you tell them, we're going to try for about five more minutes. If nothing changes, we're going to have to stop. And that's preparing them, right? And then maybe those five minutes start, you know, finish and you go, okay, we've done this, we've done that. Is there anything else you can think of? Of course, they're not going to, you know, bring up some medical thing, but that kind of, that's a way of including them. And, um, I've heard many testimonies of families that were invited to be involved, that they're the ones that actually asked them to stop. They see everything was done that could have been done. And they're done watching their family member have to go through that. And so they're the ones who actually say, please stop. It's okay. And I think that's a sense of control that must be a sense of being involved to, to, to be able to deal and process that, you know, no more. I understand now there's no more to do. Yeah. And that happened to a good friend of mine when her son died and the doctor was, this was back when I had not heard about this happening very often, bringing the family back and the doctor, she, she begged, she said, I will be good. I will, you know, I just don't want him to be alone. And they let her back there. And one of the things that was stated is he said, you know, I'm, I'm, he's had six of this medication that we refer to as adrenaline and we're trying to restart his heart with it. So he's explaining it very as basic as he can. And he says, you know, I've given him so much that I'm worried that I might get a pulse back, but not his brain. I'm worried that he won't have any brain function if I get his pulse back. And she said, okay, one more then. And one didn't work. And she says, okay, we're done wow. Like I just, that's an incredible experience. So building them up to it, letting them know it's about to happen, the preparing for it. And then, you know, you call your time of death or you tell them, I'm sorry, your husband is dead. They need to hear died and dead, but I won't get into that uh, just yet. But um, yeah, building them up to it. um, Explain to things as you go and making sure that they're included and that all their questions are answered. It's funny you said you died and and, uh, and dead, and that was going to be something to go to. There's there's really a lot um, a lot here. If we were to talk uh, just simply on the patient side uh, from this, they're not going to remember a lot. You've already mentioned that that you've got a limited window of stuff that's that's going to be important that beginning. So what if we let's say that uh, you've got the family, you've got the the leader of the family in the kitchen, others gathered around, and you come out of the living room or the bedroom, and you're going to deliver the news. 
Why don't we take it that way? Why don't we look at it and say, you know, let's let's now put ourselves in the spot. I think that's what a lot of people listening to this are saying is, you know, I can't imagine that. Or maybe they say, I don't think I've done this right. Or I don't ever think I've done it well. Now, maybe there's no great way to do it. Let's start with you come out of the room, you walk into the kitchen, there's the family sitting around, uh, hand wringing, a little bit of crying and doing this, probably knowing the end result. Let's look at it that way. All right. Well, please do not let the first time. So let's say you have a group of family outside of the room. Okay. Let's say there's, there's too many other members to all be in the house. Let's say you're working in a really small environment. So everybody has to be outside. Um, don't let the first time you speak to them be the moment that you're going to pronounce. Okay. Please. Because then it's like, where do I start? Right. So let's assume that you've come in and give them updates real quick, real quick. And then you come back and you say, I don't have good news. You're, 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 you're setting the foundation and then you're going to tell them, uh, as you know, uh, we arrived on scene. He didn't have a pulse. He wasn't breathing. We started doing this for him. We were able to get IV access. We were able to deliver medication successfully. Um, we were able to continuously offer CPR, uh, and get his, you know, whatever you want to include there, whatever reading or whatever, uh, process you want to, uh, list. Um, but despite everything we've done, it didn't work and I'm sorry. So-and-so has died. Now that's assuming that you're not going to invite them in. And so you see how like there's variables. It's almost like picking your own ending. It's like, are you going to say it? Are you going to pronounce them and then come in and tell them all? Or are you going to tell them that you're about to pronounce them and then bring them in to say goodbye? It it really just depends. Granted, I don't recommend um, if you were on scene when my mom died, there would have been 30 family members there. I don't recommend you give all 30 of them space to say goodbye while you're doing CPR. That'll take about an hour or two. Um, (laughs) But at the very least, let the, the initial point of contact, let the, you know, the, the mother or the father or the um, spouse be the one that says goodbye. And then maybe you go deliver the news on behalf of them, because the last thing you want to do is tell people afterwards. It's one of the biggest roles as the next of kin is to announce this to other people. So if you can relieve them of that and go tell the family that may be sitting in the other room, perfectly fine. That's how that might go. Hopefully that makes sense. I try and be not, I try not to be super prescriptive. Um, because every scenario is so different and every, you know, the culture of each agency and each region is a little different. So hopefully someone can take that information and adapt it. No, I, I actually think that's, that's awesome. You know, I think we watch uh, television shows, um, whether it be, you know, the fire EMS shows or the, or the medical shows, you know, Grey's Anatomy, where they go and, you know, Mm -hmm. deliver the news. And sometimes that's the only training people get in this, just watching and watching them do it on TV. I don't think I was ever trained in it, but you, you kind of develop it. I think it's, uh, I think it's important to, um, to look at those variables. I think that's, I think that's brilliant. I think that's, that people need to know that they can make a difference in this time for people, that there's a lot of ways to do it. And mm-hmm. that whether people come in and say goodbye or you go and deliver the news mm-hmm. is somewhat dependent not only on the people, but on the providers as well. How this all comes together, I guess your job really in, in EMS is to try and make it as good as uh, as good as possible. So before we wrap up with the family Talk about the the needs of the family and some of the things that they're going to say or ask or remember or not remember in this conversations. I you know recall doing these a lot as a police officer, and I always left them a list. You know, here's what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. and I try and use their name, not the body. You know, use someone's name. Say he's being you know taken to the funeral home, and then the medical examiner is involved. Here's their number. Here's my number, and just a little list. And I try and come back and check on people and in the cop mode, I'll actually stop back and see how they are. And that sometimes is, is more difficult to do than, than there, you know, and they've got that list in their hand. You know, they, they don't remember a lot of things. They, um, seem to, they seem to, to go blank. And I think that our protecting mode sometimes isn't good for them. Um, we have in, in the chart you gave me about things to say and not to say, uh, telling people to 
you know, be strong. You're going to be okay. I know how you feel. There's a lot of things which can be lame. And isn't that kind of one of the fears we have as an EMS person is why people won't engage is they're afraid of saying something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they just disengage entirely. Um, they, they do. And yes. And I'm trying to remember there was something you just said. Sorry, I'm running a blank. That's okay. I went down your list <clears throat> telling people to be strong when they can cry, um, saying that you understand how they feel, that <clears throat> people are going to be okay, that that the deceased are in a better place now. There's things that we do that <clears throat> ultimately aren't helpful. They're very well-meaning, but they're not. There's there's things that we can that we can say and do that gives them some control, that gives them a sense of being able to do something, empower them rather than than take that power away. I think. Ah, that's what it was. Um, the list you said you get them. A lot of times family wants to know what happens next. They don't know. Not every patient. So I, I recommend people get very familiar with uh, the roles and functions of law enforcement and coroners in their area. What uh, one area I worked with found out was that, you know, they thought that every single patient became, you know, a coroner's case. And that's not necessarily what we found out was that sheriffs would arrive on scene and they would call the coroner almost like we call an MICN. And so just like we call it into the hospital, they call it in the corner, they give a report and the corner is the one that decides whether they come in or not. Some are automatic, you know, kids in a certain area, um, most kids are going to automatically be a coroner's case. Um, obviously, if there's signs of homicide, if there's any type of suicide, that kind of stuff. But if the patient was on hospice, if they're 98 years old, no, they're just going to, the body is going to be released, quote unquote, to the family. Um, and then the family has to uh, contact a, a mortuary um, or funeral home. Rather, And if they didn't have that already in place, maybe looking one up for that might be the first step that you make. Because obviously, no, there's many cultures that take, uh, take moments to um, clean and prepare the deceased for their uh, you know, afterlife journey. Um, there are ceremonies that take place. There's family that comes in and says goodbye. We don't really have strong um, immediate after death traditions rituals like others yeah. yeah we don't really don't um so just you know exploring maybe that they have one you know find out that's that's part of cultural i call it cultural curiosity because i think it's impossible to be competent in every single culture i mean culture just it's not just religion and race and ethnicity it is so many more things and it can vary from household to household so instead i say be curious because um, like you mentioned earlier, we feel like if we can't do it hundred percent, we just disengage altogether. And I think that's probably one of the biggest hindrance with cultural competency and trying to reach that is, um, it feels unattainable for some. So instead be curious and ask those questions. But, um, the other thing is if you were in a position to, in the area I worked, I guarantee most people wouldn't have done it. And I probably would have hesitated it before I knew better, but leave your contact info with them. Because they are going to run a lot of blank tape that day. Uh, sudden increase in cortisol from a traumatic and acute experience will cause memory loss. It'll, it'll make it so it's, it's difficult to, to recall exactly what happened. Um, that's also half the reason for, for body cams on, on law enforcement is if they get in a physical altercation, it is, and they were acutely spiked, um, they may run blank tape too that their you know, body cam was able to pick up. So uh, people don't realize that sometimes. And so being able, being available to answer those questions later that they might have is very important. Um, it's very valuable to them. And I, I learned this from um, Dr. Antevi, his agency that he is the medical director of will actually send out a sympathy card. On behalf of the department, it doesn't come specifically from the crew, so it doesn't put the crew in any type of um, uncomfortable situation if they're not, you know, in a place where they want to interact with the the family members. But they will send a condolence card, sympathy card wow. um, to the family. And I think I don't, I don't know if it's just for kids that they do. I'm pretty sure they do it for all patients. Um, I would say that if they, uh, I would say anybody who's considering doing this, I know I'll be doing it for my agency, hopefully. Um, when I get further involved there, but I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that would be beneficial across all patients. Wow. And, and Peter, <clears throat> Peter Antevi is amazing. Um, that is, oh, uh, that's great. He's one of my favorite people. <laughs> oh, he is. He, what, what a great influence in EMS. 
Mm-hmm. The one thing we would do, we talked about, we didn't say we're going to do it. We have to eventually talk about it. It's about using the words dead and died. You know, the concept of saying, well, they've gone to a better place. They're not with us any longer. All these, what, are they, what would they be, euphemisms, I guess, that we say. Yeah. yeah, really, really don't work and people don't always get it. I've always found that the combination of respectful and direct are are. are necessary you can't have respectful and use code and you can't have you can't be direct and not be respectful we have to be able to tell them exactly what happened so they will process it and not wonder what it means later yes and what you said reminds me of um something i learned from i don't know if you're familiar with brené brown oh yeah she is a she's a shame and uh shame researcher. That's what she likes to call herself, but she's a social worker who has done some extensive research on vulnerability. That's what it is. Vulnerability and shame. And she says, clear is kind. Unclear is unkind. Like it's very simple, you know? And so any type of gray area during a acute crisis is not Mm. ideal. Gray is for contemplation. It's for uh, review and hindsight. It's for us to navigate when we're not in a heightened period of stress. But uh, a lot of times the, so I ask people, what stage of grief do you think people are in when you get there? And people almost always say anger. And I would argue that it's actually the denial and bargaining. The anger is coming from a fight or flight response. Um, Of course, that's just my theory. That's my observation. But, uh, those who are in an acute fight flight response, whether or not they're displaying emotions of anger, um, cannot process gray. You have to be direct. Uh, if you are in, this is where it kind of gets confusing. So if somebody were to meet me today and they asked about my parents, I would politely say my mother passed away almost 20 years ago because passed away is fine. There's no heightened state of, uh, of acute crisis. This person's not in their brainstem. They're able to discern when I say my mother passed away, that means she's dead. If I'm telling the survivor of a family member that their mother is dead, I cannot say passed away. I cannot say we lost them. I cannot say they moved on. I can't say any of those things that make us feel more comfortable and hesitant to say the word's dead, you have to be as direct as possible. And there's a very funny, I found a diagram one time that uh, had a map of the United States and it had the word listed, like what we, basically what we say instead of died. (laughs) So there's this whole, there's like 300 and some different like euphemisms for dying. And I just thought that is just ridiculous because I guarantee that does not exist in some other parts of the world, but Take it for what it's worth. And and we'll leave out the ones that EMS uses amongst ourselves. (laughs) We won't say those. (laughs) 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 And we do, and I think we do, we'll roll into the resilience part next. I think that's probably a good segue. But just to wrap this up, on the sheet you gave me, we can say it's okay to explain that we do everything the ER does. Uh, You'll have to repeat yourself. Use the words dead and died, be, you know, direct so it's understood, and then let them react. And that can happen a lot of ways. And then sometimes, you know, silence is it because we can't, we ultimately can't fix it. No, and, and particularly if you're an extrovert, uh, silence makes us very uncomfortable. So don't feel the need to fill the voids. Um, I promise you that your presence alone is enough to make a difference. Don't ignore them. But if they're not talking, that's fine. I, when we were doing the, the warm-up is before we hit the record button, um, one of the things I said is I think that people don't always remember what you say, but they'll remember a feeling of kindness or warmth. Uh, and that sometimes what we think is important ultimately is very low on the food chain. But there's something about kindness and warmth that's always good. Yeah, and that's a nod to the late Maya Angelou. Who, who said something to the effect of people will forget what you did. People might forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And this is it. I mean, I'm telling you right now that the I 
most times family members are not going to remember how many times it took for you to get an IV or an IO. They're not going to remember how many, all the, the methodical things that we list out that we're trying to remember. Okay. How many epi did they get? Okay. How long before this? When do we switch? You know, all these different things. They don't give, I don't care about that, but they will remember who referred to them by name, who took the time to check in with them. It's not death notifications. Isn't an individual event either. It is very much a team dynamic. And even if you're not the person who is bluntly breaking the news, um, I had a former medic student that said that they reached out that they, you know, they were not the ones that delivered the news, but they took the time to go talk to the daughter afterwards and give her a hug and stuff. And the difference that that probably made for her was huge. And that, that is still part of the death notification process is to, to come in and fully support. And so I think that that is, it's really good to bring up. All right. So now let's talk about how your program is emergency resilience. I don't want to take the last, you know, five or so minutes and just have to get through this, but there is a need for us to be resilient. Um, I'm going to go to the, the bottom of our list first, that this has a cumulative effect on us. And it contributes to burnout and, and uh, what you call is a moral injury. So I'm kind of going to the end first just to acknowledge that because it's not easy. We can do it well. We can survive and be resilient. But let's start with that and then work into the last two points about that it doesn't get easier and that we can grieve and mm. cry too. And I acknowledge that I combined a few of your points so we could get it in this time frame here. But it's not easy and that we have feelings that we may cry and it doesn't get easier and that's okay. Let's how does someone get to be resilient? How do you go the long haul and do this without uh, I think what today might be called emotional damage or or scars from doing this? Yeah. Well I think uh first of all I think you know, again, this is my opinion to take it with a grain of salt is that resilience is the sum of our experiences. It's, um, it's an outcome. It's a, it's a state that we reach not because we do X, Y, and Z, but because we went through these certain things and we allowed ourselves to fall apart. And then we sat with that and then we healed from it. Right. And so one of the things we overlook is the fact that we will grieve patients as well. And it can feel incredibly, um, it can feel incredibly disruptive, especially if you're not expecting it. I wrote an article for EMS World on complicated grief, and it 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 was an opportunity for me to express the first time that I broke down after a patient. And I thought to myself, man, this is so stupid. Like, I don't know this kid. Like, it's not my kid. I don't even have kids. Like, I just found every reason to talk myself out of it. And um, the reality is... Number one, we're not always going to be affected. Uh, there's going to be patients that are just completely mutilated. Once we get there, it's a terrible scene. It's completely horrific. And we have no problem wondering what's for dinner afterwards. So that And that's makes totally you, okay. Yes, that makes you completely normal as well. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. And I, I like to make sure that that is noted. Um, but at the same time, uh, on the occasion that a call just quote unquote gets to you, um, it's okay to feel that sadness and to think about them and go through your own kind of stages of grief. It won't take nearly six months like, uh, you know, family members will, but I will say that when we disenfranchise ourselves, um, which is the type of grief disenfranchised grief, when we disenfranchise ourselves, um, it's a lot harder to get over. It's all, I should say a lot harder to get through. And so, um, you kind of made a nod to the, um, burnout, um, there was research that was published that found that uh, this was in 2020, I believe, found that five or more death notifications in a 12-month period led to a 73% increased risk of burnout. Granted, it's not wow. the only thing that leads to burnout. Obviously, more research always needs to be done. But these are some pretty, pretty big findings. Um, and what they found also was that the antidote was training. And so what we're doing is we're failing to train our providers for an outcome that will occur 90% of the time. We have a 90% mortality rate in the pre-hospital setting. It's not much better in the hospital. It's 83%. So why are we only training for the 10 and 17% when the patient lives? Why aren't we preparing our crews 
for the reality of when the patient dies. And more importantly, why are we not creating a culture that is better prepared to show up for our family when it's our time to die? Like we're, we're feeding into this so that one day we benefit from it as well. That's what I look at when I'm thinking about bettering our field. But, uh, Hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> I know we've got you, you, no, you. No, listen. You're, this is this is awesome. You and I could talk for a long time, but there's a couple of specific things I want to bring out because this was important to you as we prepared for this. Let's talk about crying. Mm-hmm. Don't like it, but it's fine if you do it. I'm not a crier. In fact, I cried uh, in front of so many of my peers uh, the other day in a in a lecture that I gave. Um, because I, I received a very, very moving compliment from somebody, uh, who shared one their, their experience with grief. So I'm not going to share it here, but I just, that normally gives me so much anxiety and, uh, my therapist would be very proud of me. I did not, <laughs> I let it happen. I didn't, you know, shame myself out of it or talk myself out of it or blame it on something. But anyways, um, I used to have a fear of crying in front of family because I thought if they saw me cry, they would assume I made a mistake. Or if they saw me cry, uh, they would blame me. If they saw me cry, it would look unprofessional. And there is a difference between allowing those emotions to well up and out of your eyeballs, because literally hormones do come out with our tears, um, depending on what we're crying over. But there's a difference between that and having to be comforted by the family. Now that is a no, right? I mean, I think that that, that, that says speaks for itself, but it has happened. Um, that is a no, uh, would rather not. Uh, but if the family sees you cry it, it, for me anyways, when my aunt died, seeing that nurse cry conveyed to me that she understood the magnitude of that loss, like on behalf of us, like it was, it was very much, it felt as empathetic as it could get without her knowing each of us individually. Um, but just, you know, seeing what we were doing there at her bedside as she died. Um, so I'd say if it happens, it happens. Don't be ashamed of it. It, it actually conveys to the family that you cared. Um, if it's, you know, naturally occurring, don't force it either. Um, but it really is okay. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be upset over the loss of your patient. Um, and it's okay to cry. Do you think that DMS culture uh, of strength and what we perceive as resilience but really isn't sometimes is against that, is against crying, that it's perceived? And just you get back in the truck and you're driving away and then the tears come. I think we have to let people know that's okay too, that it's not a weakness, that that, that, that emotion, the hormones coming out through your tear ducts, as you say, um, may actually be a necessary response that you have to have to, to process or deal with it. Yeah. And I would actually um, add to that. That's a very good point. But I'd add to that, that if you suppress the emotion, it doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere else. And we know if you uh, refer, there's a really good book called The Body Keeps a Score, where it talks about how our emotional experiences that are left unprocessed. Most of the time, these are traumatic experiences, but I would argue that this probably applies to all things because we talk ourselves out of happiness and excitement and joy all the time because we go, Oh, I don't want to get my hopes up. Or I don't want to jinx it. Or, you know, that's called foreboding joy that you, 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 the second you get excited about something, you mentally prepare for it being taken away from you. And so to suppress those emotions, don't just disappear. They go into your, the visceral, the, uh, the muscle, the, the tissues of our body. And that's where a lot of, um, I would argue really all forms of mental illness, uh, it comes up physically. You know, we try and separate the brain, you know, the mind's up here, uh, and the body's here, but I would argue that our mind really is through out, you know, there's a, a theory that consciousness is throughout the muscle and the tissues of our body. And so that's why people who experience PTSD have very somatic responses to it. Their heart rate goes up, they tremble, they shake, um, they have trouble breathing, their chest gets tight. That also describes a lot of anxiety as well. Um, people who have depression deal with this fatigue and tiredness um, and acheness. But uh, the point I'm getting at is 
it's important to process it at some point. It can feel very unnatural because compartmentalizing is something we do extremely well. It allows us to do our job as well as we do. Um, but in the aftermath, give yourself a second. That's okay. All right. Um, that is awesome. All right. So, you know, I try and finish these with, um, uh, with a last word, a parting shot. If there was one thing, you know, primacy and recency, people remember what they hear at the beginning and the end. Uh, any last words you want to throw in about this? Any, any wisdom from your experiences and education that you would put out for our audience? I would say that I can't believe this many years later, this has been identified since the 1990s as a deficiency. We have been building protocol and systems, what, since the late 1960s. We still do not have a standard of care when it comes to notifying death. So if anybody that's listening is in a position to change that, I encourage you to start. Whether it's at an agency level, whether you're teaching at a community college, um, whether you're in a position of training. Do something because I am continuing to hear over and it's easy for me to say I'm a little biased, right? Um, you know, having created uh, a form, one, just one of what I'm sure will eventually be many death notification trainings, but our first responders are starving for some very useful C's, uh, continuing educations. So let's, um, I think it's important to review the basics, but we need to listen to them and, and there's more needed on this. I think that's a great, uh, a great wrap up. Alex Shavar is uh, the person to do that. Emergencyresilience.com is your website. I think that'd be a great source. And, you know, like I said, I think we could talk for hours and hours and break this down into pieces, but I think we've given some uh, important things in uh, less than an hour for people to do. And I think ending with a charge for people in their systems, maybe even in their own practice to be able to do more and do better on calls like this, uh, it's a great way to end it. I'd like to thank you uh, so much for being here and uh, and sharing your time and knowledge with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.